Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with the Slate Spoiler Special podcast on... Speed Racer. I'm here in the studio with Dan Coyce. Hi, Dan. Hi. The uh, editor of the Vulture blog at New York Magazine. And Dan and I, in a way, saw Speed Racer together last night. We didn't really see each other at the movie, though, Dan. We went to a giant IMAX theater and um, actually failed to catch each other afterwards because we were both so visually overloaded that I, I, think... I was I was actually suffering from a grand mal seizure in the lobby. <laughs> uh, Someone was stuffing a rolled up handkerchief yes, in your mouth. Yes. We will talk about the incredible visuals in service of a, a negligible plot of Speed Racer, but let's talk about the negligible plot first. It is spoiler special after all. Yeah, let's let's see what we can spoil. The I number mean... one thing I would like to spoil is that right before the big kiss the funny little brother appears on screen dressed as a doctor and says, warning, this scene may cause nausea among people with an allergy to cooties. And absolutely fails to get a laugh, at least in the screening we were in. I was the only one there. <laughs> it was that wan little chuckle in the yes. background with you. Uh, so Speed Racer is the story of um, young Speed Racer, played by Emil Hirsch, and his family, Ma and Pops Racer, played by Susan uh, Sarandon and John Goodman. It's directed by the Wachowski brothers, who brought us The Matrix. And uh, it is... It is the story of a kid who loves to race. Um, we should specify also that they seem to live in a kind of futuristic world where car racing is a huge part of the culture. It's yes. almost as if, I don't know, there's only there's only one sport or one cultural event that anyone cares about. Um, gladi- sort of gladiator style. Right. It's like car racing is politics meets the NFL meets um, the, the Hollywood meets everything that anyone actually cares about. Um, all rolled up into one. And it's a grand futuristic world with zooming cars that are sort of a mix of 50s muscle cars and futuristic, like, super pods. And uh, Speed Racer's dad, Pops Racer, runs a small family business that threatens to be overwhelmed over the course of the movie by um, enormous corporations that control the racing industry. And hence the world. In the and movie. hence and hence in this world, in the world of this movie, the world. You know, it's a, it is a story of a plucky go-getter who lives for only one thing and his impossibly plucky family standing up against the man represented in this $150 million Time Warner product by a, a large corporation. Right. Do you want to talk at all about how it differs from the, from the old cartoon, the late 60s, early 70s cartoon, or do you not really know the cartoon? I, I never watched it as a kid myself. I did not actually. I've seen it only as an adult. Right. I mean, I didn't actually watch it that much either. I mean, I think the, the most obvious difference that most people will immediately see is in the surface, in that the cartoon, a fairly primitive variety of anime, was a very clean and crisp visual cartoon, mostly due to, you know, I mean, it was not a time of great innovation in animation. It's almost what makes the cartoon so charming to see now, is that it has actually very flat surfaces and very chalky kind of colors, and obviously very bad dubbing in the English version. And right. There's something sort of primitive and, and herky-jerky about it that's that makes it really pleasurable. Right, watch. and in the way of all the cartoons that we grew up watching, the animators made one looped shot of Speed Racer driving that they then reused 1,000 times over the course of future episodes. I'm a little bit surprised the Wachowski brothers didn't didn't play around with, with some of that, with some of the limitations of the cartoon. I mean, obviously, they're not going to make a flat, chalky, 2D animated drawn movie. Their their whole point is to update it. But I was a little bit sorry that they didn't have a little bit more of a nostalgic look back to the feel of the cartoon. Yeah, I mean, the only there, I mean, there, I mean, in a movie with a million visual references, it's it's almost ridiculous to pick out just one or two. I mean, there were references to contemporary anime. I mean, there were plentiful references to contemporary anime, especially in in the fight scenes, which featured a lot of those shots that anyone who's watched a lot of Pokemon will recognize of of characters leaping at each other in midair and and then being foregrounded against 
static in the foreground against a sharply moving background. And that never used to happen in the old Speed Racer, those kind of moments that they almost appear against a sort of flat checkerboard or something? Not that I can recall, but again, I'm not an expert, but I mean, they are extremely prevalent in anime and in fact, and were updated in some respect in the Matrix movies and the Wachowski Brothers former Matrix movies in the bullet time sequences. Right. But no, I mean, it is interesting that in a movie that, that references visually, you know, a million different things. The one thing it doesn't really reference visually at all is the old Speed Racer cartoon. I mean, yeah, that's, that's, it's drawing it's its references absent. from everywhere but that. Yeah. Well, as long as we're talking about the look, let's try to describe the look and, and talk about the concept of stimulus overload that, that we were we were mentioning earlier. It, it, it almost seems as if, I mean, we didn't see each other in the lobby afterwards, I think, because we both had pinwheels spinning in our eyes. Right. And in my case, not in a good way, necessarily. I felt like I'd had so many images jammed into my eyes in the last two hours that I had no idea how to sort it all out. And, and we were actually mentioning... Can children nowadays sort through this kind of stuff it better than we can? Amazing. Could a 10-year-old tolerate and understand this movie? I think that maybe they can. I mean, I, I think that it seems quite possible to me that kids have a, a much more sophisticated visual vocabulary and visual palette than we did when we were growing up. I mean, I feel like as adults and as avid film watchers and as people who watch challenging movies and television programs, at least from time to time, I think that our visual our ability to sort of decode visual stimuli is probably pretty advanced among the average American grown-ups. But I think we still both had problems with this, but the kids that I was sitting near certainly didn't seem, certainly they weren't, I mean, they weren't like foaming at the mouth or bleeding from the ears or anything. And they certainly seemed to be completely enraptured by it as it was going on. And it is amazing to me that certainly focus groups would have told them if kids did not get it, if kids could not decode what was going on on the screen. You know? If the kids were able to express that that fact, I don't know. I mean, right. I would consider maybe it borderline child abuse to take a small child to this movie. But maybe right. by the time they've played a lot of video games and you know, sort of looked at a lot of crazy stuff, right. then it, it's not that it's at all, by the way, violent or or dirty or anything like no, that. It's not. actually quite squeaky clean with just a couple curse words in the whole movie and no sex whatsoever. Right. I mean, I guess if we had, you know, we sound so fogeyish talking about this movie despite <laughs> our best efforts, but. If I had to describe the visual look of it, the best I could come up with is that it is like living inside a pinball machine for two hours, uh, like maybe being the ball in a pin in a pinball machine for two hours, and that the the camera is constantly in motion. There are a million things going on this in a, on the screen at any given second. Almost all of them digitally evoked, right? Them, with actors yes. standing against a green screen background, right? And and we both saw an IMAX showing, and, and one of the things that we had talked about beforehand. In, in seeing this movie is that, well, maybe this is the kind of movie that is best seen in IMAX, that, you know, a very visually distinctive movie. But I, I realize only after the fact that a movie that is this heavily digitally created, in which the only real things on the screen are the people, um, it almost makes no difference whether you're seeing this in IMAX or not. The movie exists wholly inside computers, and so it is visually perfect, no matter what you see it on. I mean, you could see it on a, a you know, on a crappy projector in someone's living room in Boise, Idaho, and it would still look really, really Yeah, it's great. not going to have any scratches and pops on no, it. No, I mean, it is like still going to look fantastic. Whether There's you also see a it on technique IMAX they use, and maybe you know how to technically describe it better than I do, but they have a depth of field thing going on where, where it looks like 3D, even though it's not, because no matter how far it recedes into the background, every object is perfectly in focus. Right, nothing is ever out of focus in this movie. and I, I guess there's no need to worry about focus if you're not filming real stuff, right? Right, no. I mean, the only things that were ever filmed with an actual camera were the people, and it's not hard to keep people in focus. And when there are two people at, uh, at a very different distances from us, they were filmed separately and then composited digitally into the shot. I know that based on things that I've read about the methods of making this movie, I know that a conscious decision was made to make the movie visually 
almost cartoony in the sense that there is no sense ever of us being in a real physical space in which we must force our eye to focus from one thing to another or where the camera apes that change of focus from one thing to another. Right. That work is more or less done for us. And our work is just sorting out all the dozens of things that are going on on screen at any given time. Well, speaking about, um, you know, the fact that actors are the one the one thing on screen that's real. Let's talk about the performance a little bit. You said something about being kind of touched by how hard all the actors were trying. And it is a really strong cast. It is. I mean, Susan Sarandon, John Goodman and Emile Hirsch and Christina Ricci, wonderfully cast as an anime heroine. Right. Right. With her big eyes. It is. I mean, especially the, some of the older cast members, I felt like it was – I thought it was almost adorable how hard Susan Sarandon and John Goodman worked because they really – To have give to, some psychological heft and yeah. realism to these roles that were, as you say, basically sort of objects flying around at pinball machines. Right. I mean, and their moms – their names are, are mom and pops racer. Like John Goodman is like addressed by a guy bearing a subpoena as, are you pops racer? <laughs> he says, yes, that is my name. I am pops racer. But – I mean, so obviously there's there's I mean, there's not that much of an attempt in this movie to give I mean, the movie is not about the depth of the characters, but they really, really work it hard in a way that is, I think, somewhat similar, at least analogous to the way that the Wachowski brothers themselves work the visuals of this movie and that neither the Wachowski brothers and their source material or Susan Sarandon and John Goodman and their characters have a whole lot of meat to chew on. Speed Racer is not Shakespeare. And so you get the you get the sense on both their parts of them just throwing everything they can possibly throw at this material, the, John Goodman and Susan Sarandon in their performances and the Wachowski brothers and the visuals to just make – to give you as much as they possibly can so no one can say, well, they didn't give it their all. Well, see, I think we, here's a place where we differ because I think you find that moving and touching. And as much as I may admire the actors for trying, I actually found it sort of a deadening waste, this movie. And it made me sad to see so much talent on the part of both the filmmakers and the cast and just so much technical work. I mean, there's just been, been an army of digital geniuses – trying to make every shot as crammed with whatever as it could possibly be. And yet, by the end of the movie, I had given up on not only understanding or caring about the plot or characters, but even looking at all the crap. For example, I'll give you an example. There's an embedded uh, Edward Mubridge reference that the the filmmakers brag about in the the press notes. And the Wachowski brothers say, yeah, you know, Edward Mubridge, the early 20th century American photographer, who's often credited with sort of inventing proto-cinema with his famous horse race photographs, is name-checked in this one, or or image-checked in a a racing scene in which we see a kind of, behind the racetrack, there's a sign with a zebra on it, just one of the many advertisements and sort of swirling, you know, bits of imagery that the cars keep passing. And they sort of rigged it in such a way that every time they pass the zebra image, he is in a slightly different position, so he appears to be running. Okay, that's a cool joke. I love Edward Mebridge. I, as you said, I'm, I think a more or less sophisticated movie viewer, but I didn't get that at all because there were too many dozens of other things going on in each shot. So I think there's an example where, you know, a tremendous amount of thought and work and craft was put into something, but there was just so much excess. And I, I know that, I sound that, like an old fogey that here. That all but, you can say is, oh, a zebra. What? Oh, something else. Ah. Right, right, right. And this is this is why I think that, you know, it's it does seem like borderline child abuse to show your child this unless you're pretty sure that they are a more sophisticated viewer than you are. Because I know when my two-year-old sees, you know, an episode of Teletubbies, she needs explanation about everything that's going on. It just seemed almost violent, the amount of stimuli that had to be crammed into every frame. I can't disagree with you that the whole movie is kind of a pile of crap. Yet at the same time... <laughs> you think it... You, this is this is a, a good quote I wanted you to elaborate on. You said coming out, you have to be a genius to make a movie like this, even if it isn't any good. Right. Well, I mean, it's very... I feel like it is so seldom that 
you can see a movie that has is so clearly the product of a very singular vision. And even if that vision isn't very good, there's no doubting that the Wachowski brothers had a really specific vision for the way they wanted this movie to look. And every single frame of this movie is consistently just eye popping. But unlike with the matrix, I mean, the subject matter doesn't really, doesn't really stand up to that kind of, that kind of care. Right. I mean, as you say, Speed Racer isn't Shakespeare. It isn't even the matrix. I mean, the matrix could be scoffed at for its kind of misto cryptical, ridiculous plot line, but it does, or it did the first one feel like something completely fresh when you were seeing it, both the subject matter and the look and the two sort of wove together perfectly. And right. In this case, only the look feels fresh, whereas the subject matter is as, as old as the day is long. What do you think? Is it still going to be a runaway hit at the box office and have sequels? and sort of take off in that way? Uh, it's hard to imagine. I mean, the, the, the talk around It's hard Hollywood, to imagine it being or not? It's hard to imagine it being an enormous hit only because it seems like the kind of movie that parents will be terrified to take their children to for the very reasons that we're enumerating. But on the, you know, on the other hand, parents will often take their children to anything just to have something to do with them. I say as the father of a three-year-old. Would you take her to see this movie? Well, no, she's way too young for this movie. I, I just... I don't want to have to bring a mop handle for her to bite down on. <laughs> but I do, I mean, it is tracking poorly, supposedly. People, you know, in, in Hollywood, the talk is that it's not doing great. But I will say that it's hard for me to imagine people being passionate about this movie who are not on LSD at the time. <laughs> but I will also say that it is not a movie I was ever bored during and it was not a movie that i will soon forget even uh, other than the plot the characters and the story i've already forgotten all those things (laughs) but i will not forget the look of it really ever now there's another stark difference between us because i would say that the last 40 minutes or so of this movie which is quite long i mean i think even a fan would have to admit that it could it could use some trims it's over two hours long i I would say my main emotion was let it end please let it end which is not (laughs) sort of the summer movie enthusiasm that you want to engender All right. Well, Dan, thanks a lot for um, putting up with the seizure-inducing IMAX viewing of Speed Racer. And thanks for joining me on this podcast. Thank you. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.